the stuff of nightmares. Hey, what's happening, everybody? My name is Rick, and I'll be your guide on this little journey to get your true crime and paranormal fix. We'll be talking about everything from monsters in the closets to monsters next door. So make sure you keep an eye on your neighbor, you look under your bed, you check your closets, because the stuff of nightmares starts now. Warning. This episode may contain graphic descriptions of violence that some people may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. What causes good kids to go bad? Is it possible for a child to be a psychopath? Is it something they are born with or something they are raised into? Scientists believe it could be both. Researchers don't like to use the term psychopath for children because of the stigma it carries. They have given the term conduct disorder to describe callous and unemotional traits in its place, which refers to severe emotional and behavioral problems in some children. This term applies for children that show lack of empathy, remorse, or guilt, don't show much emotion, are aggressive or cruel, and don't seem to care if they are punished. In 2013, the American Psychiatric Association included these traits into its diagnostic manual to determine if children would be diagnosed with conduct disorder. Many times, we as parents think it's something that they will outgrow, that they're children, they don't know any better. But many studies are starting to prove there may be more there than just behavioral issues. Studies have shown that kids with CD are more likely to become criminals or display aggressive psychiatric behaviors later in life. But what causes CD in children? Is it nature or nurture? It appears both. Studies show that some have exhibited signs at an early age due to the environment they grew up in, with some being raised in poverty, bad neighborhoods, or abusive parents, while others were raised in good homes with loving parents. Either way, it is important to recognize and diagnose this disorder so treatment can help these kids before they turn bad. Eric Smith In 1993, four-year-old Derek Roby was a happy, loving boy who would sit on his bike at the corner of the street and wave to cars going by. Everyone knew and loved the little boy who was even considered the unofficial mayor of Savona, a small town in western New York. Eric Smith was a 13-year-old boy with fiery red hair and freckles. Many times, he would be seen riding his bike through the town alone, not appearing to have any friends. On August 2, 1993, both boys were on their way to attend a recreation program a block from Derek's home. When his mother was not ready to take him, Derek said he could go by himself. This was the first time Derek had been able to go anywhere by himself and would ultimately be his only time. Later that day, the little boy's battered body would be found in a small wooded lot about halfway between his house and the park. He had been lured from the sidewalk and had been strangled and beaten in the head with rocks. There was red Kool-Aid poured into the wound made by the rocks and his body had been positioned with his shoes off. It was also determined that he had been sodomized with a stick. Eric was asked by police if he had seen the little boy when he was on his way to the recreation program but he denied seeing Derek that day. A little while later, he changed his story and claimed to have seen him in the open field right outside of the small wooded lot Derek's body would be found. 
He described what he was wearing and even told them Derek was carrying a lunch bag. When Eric got frustrated over the questioning, he asked for a break. His father brought him some red Kool-Aid in to drink, and when Eric saw it, he got mad and threw it on the ground. Detectives found it odd that Eric reacted in such a way at the sight of the red Kool-Aid. One week later, Eric confessed to taking the boy into the woods and killing him. In 1994, Eric Smith was convicted of second-degree murder and given the maximum sentence then available for juvenile murderers, a minimum of nine years to life in prison. Since his conviction, Eric has come up for parole ten times, the most recent in January of this year, and has been denied every time. He will be eligible for parole once again in October of 2021. Joshua Phillips Joshua Phillips appeared to be a typical 14-year-old boy living with his parents in Jacksonville, Florida. He could often be seen playing with the neighborhood kids that lived on his street. On November 3, 1998, his 8-year-old neighbor Maddie Clifton went out to play around 5 p.m. but never came home for dinner. While police looked into a neighbor that had been linked to sexual assault cases in the past, the neighborhood all joined together looking for the little girl. Joshua and his parents, Steve and Sheila, joined in with the search. Unfortunately, police would end up dropping the charges on their suspect because he had a solid alibi despite failing a polygraph test. Not long later, they would end up dropping the investigation altogether because they had no leads. At this point, the search for the girl had reached to over 400 volunteers, including the Phillips family. Over the course of seven days, that search party would reach into the thousands. On the seventh day, Sheila Phillips had noticed water on the floor at the end of Josh's waterbed. She thought the bed had developed a leak and could be the cause of a strange smell in Joshua's room. When she started to pull the base of the bed apart to look for the leak, she noticed a foot in the bed frame. She ran out of the house and brought the police officer back in to see what she had found. Joshua was picked up from school and brought to the police station where his father was waiting. Once inside, Steve told Joshua he needed to tell the truth to the police. Joshua told police the day Maddie went missing, she came over and wanted to play. Joshua said he couldn't because he was not allowed to go outside or have anyone inside his house when his parents weren't home. He claimed that she was persistent, so he went outside and played baseball with her for a little bit. He said she threw the ball to him, and when he hit the ball, it flew over and hit her in the head, opening up a big gash. She fell down screaming, and he panicked. He picked her up and took her into the house. He carried her back into his room and put her on the floor. When she started moaning, he got scared that he was going to get in trouble for breaking the rules, so he hit her twice in the head with the bat to make her stop crying. When she continued to cry, he stabbed her twice in the throat, and stuffed her body into the frame of his bed. When he went to wash the blood from his hands, he heard her begin to moan again. He went back into the bedroom, pulled her out from the bed, and stabbed her nine times in the chest before stuffing her back into the bed frame. On August 26, 1999, he was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In June of 2017, Joshua was allowed to undergo sentencing once more thanks to a Supreme Court decision in 2012 ruling that it was unconstitutional to sentence a juvenile to life without parole. He was resentenced to life in prison 
with the possibility of parole. He will be eligible for another resentencing hearing in 2023. Lionel Tate Lionel Tate was a bright, street-smart 12-year-old boy that had an affinity for professional wrestling. He had also had a history of behavioral problems that began around the age of five. He was constantly getting in trouble for fighting, lying, and stealing, and had been suspended from school 15 times. On July 28, 1999, his mother, Florida Highway Patrol Officer Kathleen Grosset Tate, was babysitting for a friend she had grown up with in Jamaica. Six-year-old Tiffany Eunuch was going to spend the evening at the Tate residence and play with Lionel, whom she had just met two to four weeks prior. After dinner, the two children watched television and hung out while Kathleen went upstairs. Around 10 p.m., the kids started making some noise, and she yelled down for them to be quiet, but did not check on them. Around 10.40 p.m., Lionel went to his mother to tell her that Tiffany was not breathing. He claimed they were wrestling around when he put Tiffany in a headlock and her head slammed into a table. The medical examiner, however, believed something else had happened. He believed she had been beaten to death. He cited Tiffany had 35 injuries, including bruises all over her body, broken ribs, a ruptured spleen, numerous fractures to her skull, brain contusions, and part of her liver had detached and was floating around inside her body. Her head was beaten so bad that part of her brain was flattened inside of her skull. At trial, he had been given the opportunity at a plea deal, which would have given him a three-year sentence if he pleaded to second-degree murder. He chose to plead innocent. On March 9, 2001, at the age of 14, Lionel was found guilty of first-degree murder and became the youngest person ever to be convicted of first-degree murder in the U.S. Lionel would spend three years at a juvenile detention center until December 2003 when his conviction was thrown out by the appeals court. They stated that the reason the conviction was thrown out was because he was not given a mental competency hearing before or during his trial. On January 26, 2004, he took the plea deal he originally turned down, pleading guilty to second-degree murder. He was released after being sentenced to serve one year's house arrest, 10 years probation, and was required to wear an electronic monitoring device. On September 3, 2004, Lionel was arrested when police found him a few blocks from his home carrying an 8-inch knife. In October, the court would add five more years to his probation and place him on zero-tolerance probation. On May 23, 2005, Lionel was arrested and charged with one count of armed burglary with battery, armed robbery, and violation of probation for allegedly robbing a Domino's pizza delivery man. The man was robbed by a black man with a bandana over his mouth pointing a gun at him. He identified Lionel as the man holding the gun. He was sentenced to 30 years in prison for violating his probation by possessing a gun. He was also given a 10-year sentence for the robbery that would run concurrent to the 30-year sentence. Alyssa Bustamante On the outside, 15-year-old Alyssa Bustamante appeared to be a normal, rebellious teenager. But inside, something dark and evil was lurking and just waiting for the opportunity to show itself. Between 2002 and 2009, 
Alyssa and her three younger siblings moved to St. Martin's, Missouri to live with their grandparents. They had hoped to get the kids away from the troubled lives they were living and give them a stable home away from their biological parents. Her father was serving a 10-year prison sentence for assault and her mother had had a long history of drug and alcohol abuse and had also spent time in jail. Alyssa appeared to be adjusting well to the move and she was doing well in school and attending church regularly. But in 2007, something changed. She went into a deep depression and would cut herself hoping the physical pain would help dull her emotional pain. She tried to end her life a few times and would be put on antidepressants, which appeared to work for a while. She had various social media accounts, including a YouTube channel, which listed her hobbies as cutting and killing people. On October 16, 2009, Alyssa went into the woods behind her house and dug two holes in the ground to be used as graves. Then she waited for her chance to strike. On October 21, 2009, Elizabeth Olton, a nine-year-old neighbor, was over at the house playing with Alyssa's sister. When Elizabeth left the house and was walking home, Alyssa called her cell phone and asked her to come back, saying that she had a gift to give her. Alyssa lured Elizabeth into the woods, where she strangled the young girl before slitting her throat and stabbing her in the chest. She then put her body into the grave and covered it with leaves and mud. Alyssa went back to her house where she wrote in her diary, I just fucking killed someone. I strangled them and slit their throat and stabbed them, and now they're dead. I don't even know how I'm supposed to feel. It was amazing. As soon as you get over the, oh my God, I can't do this feeling, it was pretty enjoyable. I'm kind of nervous and shaky though right now. Okay, gotta go to church now. She then went to spend the evening hanging out with friends at a church dance. Alyssa became a suspect after police learned of her disturbing history, and once they found her diary and what was written in it, they arrested her. She soon confessed and took police into the woods, the very same woods they had already looked for the young girl in. The motive for the murder? She just wanted to see what it felt like to kill someone. On January 30th, 2012, Alyssa pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and armed criminal action. She was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 35 years. It has been speculated that her little brothers were to be her intended victims, which is why she dug the two graves. Craig Price Craig Chandler Price appeared to be her average teenage boy growing up in Warwick, Rhode Island. The brawny football player with a baby face nicknamed Iron Man lived with his parents in the working class neighborhood of the Buttonwood section of town. The teen was often seen walking around town with a smile on his face and was thought to be happy and good humored, but something was hiding behind that smile. Something evil. As a child, Craig found himself getting into trouble on a regular basis. He had a lengthy juvenile criminal record which included breaking and entering, robbery, drug use, stalking, and assault, with most of his victims being family members. But one summer night, the 13-year-old would add murder to his list of crimes. On the night of July 27, 1987, 
Craig crept through his yard over to his neighbor's house. On this night, he was not there to peep in on her as he had on dozens of other occasions. This night would be different. Craig gained entry into the house, took a knife from the drawer, and stabbed 27-year-old mother of two, Rebecca Spencer, 58 times. There were no witnesses, no leads, and no suspects, and eventually the case went cold. Two years later, on September 1st, 1989, Craig broke into another house in the neighborhood, high on LSD, with intentions to burglarize it. He found an open window in the kitchen and crawled through it, landing on the kitchen table. The table legs gave out and the table crashed to the floor, yet he continued with his plan to rob the house, unaware the noise had awoken the homeowner. 39-year-old Joan Heaton had heard the noise in the kitchen and got out of bed to investigate. She walked into the kitchen and turned the light on to find Craig standing there. In a panic, Craig grabbed Joan and began to beat and strangle the woman. Her screams woke her two daughters, who came out to see what was going on. When the younger girl, 8-year-old Melissa, ran to the phone to call police, Craig overpowered her and subdued the other girl, 10-year-old Jennifer. He grabbed a knife and began to stab them all. At some point during the attack, one of the girls bit Craig in the hand and he responded by biting her in the face, and then he also bit Joan. When Melissa would not stop struggling to get free, Craig grabbed the kitchen stool and smashed it into her skull. Sometime during the struggle, Craig had stabbed himself in the hand. He went to the bathroom, removed his gloves, and cleaned up his injury not knowing that he had left a trail of blood and bloody sock prints behind. The FBI would be called in due to the similarities of the two murder scenes and determined it was the work of a serial killer. A serial killer that would be dubbed the Slasher of Warwick. They believed the killer would be a local to the neighborhood due to the distances between the two crime scenes, that he was a killer of opportunity meaning that he did not go there with the intention of killing, which is why he did not bring his own weapon, and that the killer had injured himself during the attack. They feared it was only a matter of time until he struck again. On September 5, 1989, police were driving through a park near Buttonwood when one of them spotted a teenager he knew, Craig Price. He called the boy over to ask him if he had heard about the murders when he spotted a cut on his hand. Craig claimed he had injured his hand when he punched a car window. But the more they thought about it, the officers felt Craig should be investigated a little bit more. The fact that he lived in the neighborhood of the murders and that he had a cut on his hand made them feel it was just too much of a coincidence. They brought him in for questioning and asked him again how he hurt his hand. He even agreed to take a polygraph test, which he failed, but that alone was not enough to hold him. They needed more evidence. On the early morning of September 17th, police served a search warrant on the Price residence. While searching the property, officers found a garbage bag with bloody clothes and knives in the shed. They immediately arrested Craig on suspicion of murder. During his interrogation at the police station, Craig quickly confessed to the Heaton murders. When asked about the murder of Rebecca Spencer, Officers were surprised when Craig admitted to killing her as well. 
Police were hoping to put Craig in prison for a very long time for the four lives he unremorsefully had taken. Unfortunately, Craig had the law on his side. Since Craig had admitted to the murders before his 16th birthday, Rhode Island law states the courts could only hold him in a training school until the age of 21. At the age of 21, he would be released and his record wiped clean. Even though he could not be tried for the murders, he would still have to go to a court hearing before he could be placed into a training school. On September 21st, 1989, Craig pleaded guilty to murder and burglary and was sent to the Rhode Island Training School's Youth Correctional Center, a maximum security detention center, for a five-year sentence. He was also ordered to undergo a psychological evaluation and therapy, which he refused and pleaded the Fifth Amendment when asked to talk about the murders. By 1993, Craig had gotten his GED and had developed a good reputation which had earned him the ability to have more freedoms in the facility. Once the public found out about the special treatment he was receiving, they demanded it stop. In 1990, Joan Heaton's mother and sister, along with the Attorney General and the police captain, helped in passing the O'Neill Bill, which toughened the sentence of teenage murderers. In 1993, Attorney General Pine proposed the Craig Price Bill, which would give the Office of the Attorney General the power to civilly commit a mentally ill individual to a mental institution if the person posed a danger to society. On October 3, 1994, Craig was sentenced to trial for simple assault and extortion after threatening the life of a correctional center employee. He would be sentenced to 15 years, eight of which were suspended, in the Adult Correctional Institution of Cranston. The next year, he would go on trial for criminal contempt for refusing to comply with the psychological evaluations ordered by the state. He would be found guilty, and 25 years were to be added to his other sentences. He would only have 10 years added to his sentence to be served outright, while the other 15 years would be probation. In February 1996, Craig was involved in a prison fight and bit the finger of a guard who was trying to break up the fight. In October of 1998, seven more years were added to Craig's sentence for assaulting a correctional officer. It would not be his last time. In February of 1999, and again in October 2001, Craig was sentenced to a total of four more years for again verbally and physically assaulting correctional officers. In 2009, a corrections officer was stabbed in the hand by a shank found in Craig's possession. On April 4, 2017, Craig entered the cell of fellow inmate Joshua Davis and repeatedly stabbed him. Davis ran away, but Craig tackled him and continued to attack him on video with a homemade 5-inch knife. He was sentenced to another 25 years, plus 10 years probation. Special thanks to Jasmine Rivera for reading Alyssa Bustamante's diary entry. Hey there, I'm Tony Palacio, host of There Is Something Out There, a new podcast dedicated to true crime, the mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. From the beautiful Pacific Northwest, home of Bigfoot and some of America's most notorious serial killers, I'm going to present to you the world's worst crimes, scariest monsters, strangest stories, tall tales, and totally terrifying testimonials. Join me as we discover that the noises you hear may not just be your imagination. There is something out there. You can find me wherever you get your favorite podcasts from, including Stitcher, Spotify, Player FM, 
Amazon, and Google Podcasts. Thank you. Like what you're hearing so far? Make sure to never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. Every day, people all over the world encounter things they cannot explain, things that terrify them, and things that defy logic. But not everything can be rationalized. Not everything has a logical explanation. Not everything can be proven by science. In fact, according to Dr. Ethan Seigel, when it comes to science, proving anything is an impossibility. It is a theory based on a lot of evidence to validate a specific idea over a period of time. He states, nothing in science can ever truly be proven. It's always subject to revision. If that in fact is the case, why are some people so skeptical of things that cannot be explained? Over the years, dozens of plant and animals thought to be extinct have been identified. Just last year alone, California Academy of Science researchers discovered 71 new animal and plant species. So is it out of the realm of possibility that people are seeing cryptids, UFOs, ghosts, and Bigfoot? To those that have seen or experienced these unknown phenomena, it is real and terrifying. Many choose to keep their experiences to themselves for fear of being ridiculed or ostracized. Many are looking for validation from others to ensure that what they saw or experienced was truly real and not just in their head. And then there are those that know what they experienced and want to help others by sharing their experiences. These are their stories. This week's encounter of the unknown was sent in by Dave from Florida. Hi, I'm Dave. I uh, was assigned to Banger Submarine Base west of Seattle in 1982. And one of my buddies named Raz and I started, uh, if we weren't skiing, we were camping every weekend. And we loved the Olympic Peninsula. We did a lot of hiking, a lot of camping. So we took off to go to a lake with a wilderness campsites we had never been to. It was only about a three mile hike, but it was pretty steep. And so we're walking and we hear some noises that sound to me like chimpanzees. Now I'm a Florida boy. I don't know anything about the mountains. I just started getting into camping uh, when I got out there. So I hear these chimpanzee sounds and I look at Raz and I go, are there monkeys in these mountains? And he laughs and says, no, I don't know what that is. So we're listening for a, a minute or two and it changes from chimpanzee sounds to like very guttural, um, almost barking, sounded almost like Germanic or Slavic language. And I'm like, what the hell is that? And he's looking at me and he says, whoa, I go, what? He says, someone just threw a big rock over your head. I go, where? And I start looking around and then here comes another rock the size of a grapefruit, four feet, five feet over my head, just like a fastball. I mean, it flew by me and had to go another hundred feet. So I'm like, whoa, what's going on here? So 
he says, we need to get out of here. I said, no, because I'm thinking it's college kids or a prankster. I'm like, let's run up the hill here and flank these guys. And uh, we can throw rocks back at them. And he says, no way. And he just takes off running. So I'm like, well, hey, why to leave me here, you coward? So another rock comes by, and I figure, well, maybe I should clear out of here, too. So I go chasing after him. I was convinced it was someone pulling a prank, and he didn't know what to think. So we finally make it up to this beautiful lake right up near Treeline, and it's wilderness campsites. We pick a site, we set up our tent, and then we see this uh, lady ranger. So we tell her, hey, what was going on? It so I said, it sounded like chimpanzees. Then it got very guttural. And then someone started throwing rocks at us. And the ranger lady looks at me and says, that was a Sasquatch. And I, I believe I literally laughed at her and said there's no such thing. And she just shrugged and says, well, I don't know what to tell you then. But we've had people experience stuff like that here in these mountains so she leaves i'm telling my buddy she's nuts we were the kind of lazy sailors we would actually put beer in our backpacks so we sit around the campsite we drink some beers swimming in ice cold lake and about sundown we decide to hit the rack well we're laying in bed pitch black outside and like i said we're close to tree line maybe a couple hundred feet away and the ground surrounding us was covered with pine needles so we're both laying there at night and all of a sudden we hear someone walking on the pine needles and it's walking from like uphill where the trees cease to be down to our camp and we just sit there and like what in the world something walks right into our camp and is standing in front of our tent. Now we can't see who's out there. And I'm about to say, hey, who's there? And we hear this thing inhaling. <sighs> but it just keeps inhaling and inhaling and inhaling for what seems like 10 seconds, which was very curious to us. And then this thing screams. And I got to tell you, my poop turned to soup. I have never been so terrified in my entire life. It sounded, or it didn't sound like, but it was as loud as if someone had a train horn, like you see on these souped up pickup trucks, three feet from our tent. We were mortally terrified. I mean, literally shaking from fear. So this thing screams for, a, I don't know how long, 10, 15 seconds. It stops and it just stands there. And I mean, neither one of us are going to move. We're terrified like we've never been scared in our life. And then after a minute, the thing walks back back uphill over the pine needles and we don't hear anything of course we're laying there we want to get out of there and we're absolutely not in a million years are we going to climb out of this tent and start breaking stuff down if we did 
It's not like we could get down the trail in the pitch black. So we basically lay there scared until sunrise. So then we get up and it's like, I can't, neither one of us could even believe that happened. Then I believed in Sasquatch. And he said, yeah, I think that's what that was. And for some reason, it does not want us here in its territory. Oh, one other thing I forgot to mention. Going up the trail, which was quite difficult to follow, my buddy with more forest experience had to lead the way. We saw four or five of these bundles of torn up, upturned trees thrown together with the root saw at the top. Not in a pyramidical type structure, but all leaning in and on each other. Um, and some of these trees were as fat as my leg. And we're both wondering what in the world could do that. Some of these roots, you could tell they were just torn out of the ground and still had dirt and stuff on them. Some of them had been there quite a while. But um, we're even commenting, you would need like a hydraulic jack on the back of a truck to yank a tree that size out of the ground. But we, we couldn't figure out what it was. So we just thought it was curious and interesting and kept going. Okay, so the next morning, the lady ranger comes back and says, hey, other people camping around the lake heard something screaming really loud here last night. Did you guys? And I don't know why, for some reason, we're both such chickens. We're like, nope, nope, never heard a thing. Nope, nope. We just... We didn't even want to engage this woman. And I think she could tell we were full of crap. But she just left us be and we packed up our stuff and left. Never went back there. At one time, I thought about going back by myself. And I had even thrown my camping gear in the pickup truck. And then I couldn't get in the truck and go. I did, there was just no way I was going to go back there. So... That morning, we're heading down the mountain, and my buddy's ahead of me. And we're walking along. At this one point, there was like a, a rock cliff with a bunch of pine trees abutted up against it. And I could hear something moving along the face behind the pine trees. So I didn't think much of it at that time. We're a mile or so down the trail heading back towards my pickup truck so I stop and I'm listening and something is like moving right behind the pine trees up against the rock face now I started to feel a little fear about this but I walked over and moved the pine boughs and on the other side of this 30 40 foot tall palm tree with the pine boughs that stretch out six or eight feet at the base was this black with black skin and dark dark brown almost black eyes Sasquatch now I'm five foot ten and he was squat all the way down on his haunches and we're looking eye to eye and when I looked in this thing's eyes 
you could tell there was intelligence there, like looking in a human's eyes. And he looked at me and I looked at him. <laughs> Instant terror. If It's like if you all of a sudden got dropped into the gorilla cage at Bush Gardens or something, this animal is so huge and so immense, all you can feel is fear in front of it. I could not have been more scared if it was a tiger. So he's just looking at me and I look at him and all like in slow motion, I'm thinking, I'm not gonna bother you. Please don't bother me. And I turn around real slow and just walk away. So there was no communication or anything passed between us other than he was letting me know this is his territory and he knows I'm there and as far as I could tell he did not want me there so I caught up to my buddy and said hey you won't even believe what I just saw and he just he was ready to run like a triathlete all the way back to the truck so that was uh, my Bigfoot experience and like I said, I was absolute non-believer. I would scorn anyone that even talked about Bigfoot. And I, now it's like, I've been there, I've seen that. And uh, I'll be a believer the rest of my life. In fact, I've told my wife and kids, and they laugh at me. And I say, okay, you wait. We're going on a road trip, and I just wanna go back there somewhere just so you can hear one of these screams at night. And that's basically it. Well, thank you for sharing your story. I noticed a few things you actually got face to face. Was it scared of you or was it just kind of like shocked that you were right there in front of it as? Oh, not, not in the least bit scared or intimidated of me. It had been following us, I guess. When I moved those pine boughs and saw it, it just looked at me like like I look at a chihuahua. But it didn't actually like puff its chest out and and like intimidate no. you. It was just kinda there. Yeah. That's interesting. Just looking at me. Probably waiting to see what my reaction was gonna be. Because <laughs> I, I gotta tell you, I was I just I'm turned around very slowly like I'm ignoring you please ignore me and I walked off well I think I know what my reaction would have been and you definitely would have I would have left a trail yeah yeah pretty pretty close to that but I, I didn't want to take off running because this thing could have pounced and been on me in a heartbeat yep I was saying just back though I'm 5'10 and squatting all the way down on its haunches, I was looking at this thing eye to eye, and its head was easily twice the size of mine, maybe two and a half times. Um, I'm just curious, if, did you notice any other sounds in the woods? I know a lot of times when there's experiences, people will say the wood, woods just gets completely quiet, like you don't hear any other sounds. Um... I don't recall any other sound at that time. 
I mean, it, when it when I when it snuck up on me and I saw it, I didn't hear anything. Of course, at that point, I basically had tunnel vision. Absolutely. From fear, and the night before, it was just absolutely still. That's why we could hear someone walking on the pine needles, which basically does not make much sound. You know, I recall now. Uh, walking up to the lake a couple of times we were using hiking sticks and I don't recall if it was me or my buddy Raz wrapped the stick on a tree and up the valley we heard something wrap on a tree back so we did this two or three times and something knocked back but we just thought oh we both thought those must be hikers further up the trail. It's interesting, especially especially knowing that the ranger would come right out. Normally, they're not ones to say, yeah, there's Bigfoot here, or, you know, they don't necessarily want to believe. I'm sure they've all had experiences, but they definitely don't want to tell people, yeah, this is what it is. Well, she... She was quite matter-of-fact with us, well, that's and she just acted like, oh, another one of those dummies when I laughed at her and said there's no such thing. That's good. At least at least she gave you somewhat of a warning that there might be something else out there that you don't want to run into. Oh, I'm a big-time believer now. And after that, I I never wanted to go back into the Olympic range by myself again. As a matter of fact, I got out of the Navy. It had been 15 years or so, and I got on Facebook, and just for the fun of it, I looked up my buddy Rez, and he's a postman in Minnesota now. And so to contact him, I messaged him, and the first thing I said was, hey, remember that time the Sasquatch screamed at us? question mark and he, the guy blocked me <laughs> apparently he did not want to remember it uh, I hadn't seen the guy in at least 15 years so he probably that probably gave him PTSD <laughs> when I when that popped up out of the blue well I'm I can sure. tell you we we were both um assigned to a Trident submarine and we both had security clearances and I can I would like to tell you a completely different story what happened when we're at sea up in the Gulf of Alaska one time uh, I was sitting on the mess decks and I hear something that sounds like a cross between a sewing machine and a a Japan, Jap pocket rocket motorcycle. You know how they whine at high frequency? Zzz, like that? Yep. So there's about 20 of us on the mess decks. It's right at the end of lunch. And we hear this thing coming from behind the boat, coming from astern. And, it, and we all stopped because you just didn't hear anything through the hull. Almost never. So it came up and went around us three times and it changed pitch and tone a little as it went around in a circle but then it after it gone around three times 
it went forward, went to a higher frequency, and disappeared. And simultaneously, we all looked at each other and said, what in the hell was that? So about 10 minutes later, uh, all the sonar techs come off watch. And they were freaking out. Uh, my best buddy on the boat was a sonar tech. So he comes and sits down and immediately wants to tell me all about this. He said something came up from behind us going like 300 miles an hour underwater. It might have been 300 knots. I can't recall what he said. They usually used knots when we're underway. He said it slowed down and circled us at like 250 at like a, a half mile away so it was a, a circle a mile around and it went around us this fast then it disappeared he said when it went forward it accelerated and was off the sonar screen in like two seconds so uh he, he, he told out all the all the sonar techs were on the mess decks telling us about this and we're like oh shit that has to be like a, a flying saucer or some shit they, they don't have anything that goes that fast at that time and then they're all immediately recalled they come on the 1MC and say sonar techs return to the sonar shack they go back up there and the captain tells them everything that happened is now top secret and close your mouth and don't tell anybody anything again so i would love to know what that was i've seen a few you know ancient alien shows and flying saucer shows but i'm also pretty convinced we got buzzed by something that came out from under the ice cap and took off well and i've heard stories of ships coming from underwater so it wouldn't be surprising yeah. if there was something there yeah so those were my my two big adventures in washington state and in the navy very interesting thank you so much for sharing well that's it for this week's episode of the stuff of nightmares podcast thanks for listening if you would like to find out more about today's topic you can check out our sources in the show notes on facebook and our website at www.thestuffofnightmares.show. Like, share, and follow us on Facebook, as well as subscribe and give us a positive review on your favorite podcast app or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have an experience that you would like to share with the show, you can either email me to admin at thestuffofnightmarespodcast.show or message me through Facebook. I am your host, Rick Ness. I will see you next episode where I hope to find out what keeps you up at night.